Now Your Food with Warty, episode 116. For links and more, visit the show notes at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 116. See you there. Hey everyone, welcome to Know Your Food with Warty. I'm Warty in Southwest Oregon, a traditional food blogger at ganalfglins.com and knowyourfoodpodcast.com. I'm glad you're here. This is the podcast where we're all about ditching those poisonous processed foods, breaking free from the conventional food paradigm, and instead embracing whole foods raised, saved, and prepared with traditional methods. It's fun, it's delicious, and it's healthy. You're on your way to looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today for Know Your Food with Warty. Let's start with the tip of the week. And this is a tip to help you get the most out of a small garden. This is a tip that comes from Andrea, writer at Traditional Cooking School blog. And she actually has a collection of eight tips to help you get the most out of a small garden. I'm talking about just one of them. So for the other seven, you'll want to head to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash smallgarden. Then you can see the other seven. Here's the one I want to share with you. It's actually number two on her list, and it is to grow up. You can gain lots of garden space by training vine plants like melons, cucumbers, and squash to grow up instead of out. Andrea says she's blessed with a fence at her house that does this job well, but you can build a simple trellis um, to do the job too. In fact, I'll tell you what we do is we put T-posts in the garden beds and then we take sections of cattle panels and uh, just use some baling twine to um, hook them to the uh, the T-posts in a couple locations. And then we've got these um, trellises and we put cucumbers, squash. We even, we even um, have our tomato plants go up the T-post and then I kind of use um, that garden rope to just gently encourage and tie the tomato vines to the cattle panels that spread out. So it's made um, taking care of those plants so much easier in our small garden space. We do live on five and a half acres, but our garden space is not huge. So I kind of, this really helps us to keep our plants contained into the beds instead of spilling out and taking over the walkway. Um, And as Andrea um, advises, as your vine starts to grow, you do what I just told you. You can either use that um, garden twine or you can just gently wrap your vines around your fence or, as I mentioned, the cattle panel, and that will gently encourage it to go up and around. And then soon enough, it's going to continue on that path on its own. So that is the tip for making the most out of a small garden. It is to grow up and seven more tips await you at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash smallgarden. Let's take a quick break, and then I'll be back to introduce you to my guest. Hi, I'm Wardy, a traditional cooking expert and food blogger at ganalfglins.com. For years, my family struggled with food-related health problems, but we don't anymore. And I'd love to show you that preparing whole foods with traditional methods is easy, delicious, and super good for you, too. So just go to traditionalcookingschool.com slash free, and I'll show you how easily you can do it too. 
I'll give you five free videos that include my favorite traditional cooking techniques, plus printable at-a-glance fact sheets as a handy reference. So, if you're ready to start looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good, then visit traditionalcookingschool.com free today. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me. I'm here with John Moody, the Executive Director at Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, a wonderful organization. We'll talk more about it. His expertise is on food co-ops. And let me tell you a little bit about John. Um, As one of the most innovative and largest local food buying clubs in America, John Moody with Whole Life is in a unique position to help others start, expand, transition, and grow access to local and nutrient-dense foods in their cities and communities. Um, his book covers a wide range of basic issues. We're going to talk about the book, questions and concerns, and it'll help anyone start a club off on the right foot for long-term growth and success. So welcome, John. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here to pick your brain about this um, exciting thing. Um, Our family and friends have for a long time participated and run and, you know, benefited from food co-ops and buying clubs. And it's probably one of the top big questions we get at traditional cooking school. So I'm excited to dive into this for all our readers and listeners. So let's start with those some personal things. And you can get as personal as you want to get or as, you know, as private as you want to be. But (laughs) let's get to know you. So for all our listeners who don't know you, just tell us about you, your family and what you do. Great. Well, I have a beautiful wife and four children, um, all 10 and under, because we're slightly insane, it seems, to have that many kids um, in that age range all at the same time. So the house is always a great deal of fun (laughs) and a little bit of noise. And sometimes sleep is a little bit scarce. Um, But we live on a 35-acre farm about an hour outside of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, And so... We have chickens and cows and a large garden. We kind of we kind of follow a mixture of principles of sustainable and perennial and permaculture and, and similar methodologies of raising food and tending animals well. Um, I've been executive director for Farm to Consumer since I guess it was around last October or November. Um, some over the feet getting wet portion of the program, which is nice. Um, <laughs> just trying to get my head wrapped around everything going on. I was a board member for Farm to Consumer before that. Um, but on a more personal level, had you known me any time before my mid-20s, you would have never, ever guessed that I would be where I am today. Uh, um, I think I you had, need to explain that. I had like four <laughs> food groups as a child. Um, and they were like sugar, processed breakfast cereal, sugar and cookies. (laughs) Um, so, you know, growing up, um, I ate very little vegetative matter and cause potatoes are kind of a vegetable, but not really. And that was about (laughs) the only vegetable I ever ate as a child. Um, but I was also very, very unhealthy on a number of levels. I had dental decay when I was in middle school, I had anemia. My brother and sister both were asthmatic. I had seasonal allergies so bad the Benadryl company used to send me free stock options in the mail um, as a thank you for my consistent support. Um, So I I was a very, very ill person. And in my early 20s, 
um, I developed severe duodenal ulcers, um, which are a marvelous condition that feels like your insides are being ripped out um, by snakes or gnomes or something. It's just totally terrible. Hmm. Um, and it was through becoming so sick in my early 20s that I began to see that my doctor had nothing to offer me but medication. And we were really fortunate to come across the work of Sally Fallon. And through food, I was able to not only heal my ulcers, heal my allergies, heal my dental decay, um, all these chronic conditions that I'd had for many, many years. Within a year, I was able to substantially recover from just through food. Wow. That is um, incredible. Yeah, it, it was a real blessing. It, it was amazing that I was in better health um, in my 30s than I was in my 20s. Because, you know, most people, the, the 20s are supposed to be the best, and then they hit their 30s, and it's like all downhill from there. Um, whereas for me, all through my 30s, I've enjoyed overall improving health, mm-hmm. which has been wonderful. Because had I continued to go downhill, I probably wouldn't be here right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's marvelous. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I think it's incredible that so many people that are guests on Know Your Food with Warty have something like that in their history, a big health issue. It's something that's a huge light bulb, turnaround, life-changing kind of event, and that uh, nutrient-dense traditional foods and traditional methods help to reverse. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, yes. It's, it's just so sad that more people don't consider it. Yeah, it's true. Well, it's, um, it's not as easy as, as Benadryl, right? <laughs> it, when you, when you look at it in terms of, I, you know, the work involved, popping a pill is much easier. However, when you look at it in terms of a life sentence of not feeling good, poor energy, declining health, lots of issues, and quality of life sacrificed, then the tables turn. Exactly. So talk to us about whole life. You are John Moody of whole life. What is whole life? Well, well uh, so one thing my wife and I, at the time she was my fiance and now we're married, um, when we started transitioning from shopping at Kroger and Sam's Club to shopping at Wild Oats and Whole Paycheck, <laughs> um, I went from thinking I'd be able to support a family on a full-time job to thinking I'm going to need many full-time jobs to support my family because of the, just the, you know, the sudden increase in the amount of money we were spending on food. I also noticed very quickly that a lot of the items offered at those stores were the equivalent of organic junk food. Mm. And I also noticed that a lot of items at those stores, um, the farmers still were not being compensated properly, especially given the price I was paying. Right. There's just this huge disparity Mm -hmm. um, in in the amount of money the store was getting versus the amount of money the farmer was getting. Um, And so through a series of events, um, we started with some friends, just a little buying club. It it was eight families out of our apartment 
um, our tiny little apartment that had two kids and me and my wife all stuffed into it. Um, and it, it was just a few families to start where we wanted, we wanted to have better transparency with the food we were accessing. Um, we wanted to make sure that the farmers were getting the majority of the money we were spending. Um, and we wanted that kind of direct relationship with our food providers. And, and that's how the buying club was born. So Whole Life is the buying club that you started. Bingo. The buying club's called Whole Life Buying Club. And after a few years, the buying club got so big and there was so much administrative work needing handled that I started my own LLC. Also at that time, I was starting writing for some magazines and I really needed a business format um, to take care of the financial side of things. And so I started an LLC that's a completely separate entity um, that provides billing and administrative services to the buying club. Um, hmm. and, and so this is something we can talk about later on in terms of if you have a larger buying club, why this kind of setup can be legally and financially helpful to everybody involved. Okay, so back to um, whole life got so big. How big are we talking about? And were you in Kentucky at that time? Yeah, the buying club's always been up in Louisville. Okay. Um, we, we've moved locations as we've grown. So we started out in our apartment. And at some point, the amount of traffic it generated at our apartment began to raise eyebrows with <laughs> our landlord and our neighbors. Um, and so then we moved to a community center and we were there for a year or so. But then we got so big there, there was no storage space on hand we could use. And so hauling everything started just to become a logistical and, uh, you know, hauling things and the schedule of the community center and our expanding need for a little bit more time. Um, so we finally rented a space inside of a church and then we were there for a few years and then we outgrew that space. And now we're in our own um, basically kind of like warehouse style space. Um, and you serve and your local community. Yes. It's okay. just people in and around the Louisville area. Okay. And so this process that took, took years and ended up with you forming an LLC to do the administrative and billing end, this is all the expertise that you have now put into your book, the Food Club and Co-op Handbook. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. So it's kind of, yeah, to, to, make, to make my life easier, because I, I started getting so many emails oh, with I'm questions. Sure. How can I do this? <laughs> How did you do that? Help me. <laughs> yeah. And so it was easier for me to write one simple 80-page overview than continue to answer 80 emails a week answering the same questions. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's dive into what you talk about in your book. But first, I know people are probably, some of our listeners may be at their computer right now, or they're already like, okay, where can I find this? So give us the location that they can go look at your book. Well, if you want a paper copy, okay. farm to consumer carries the paper copies. Okay. And so you can go to farmtoconsumer.org, and I believe you can still order it off the website. Um, and if you're a member of Farm to Consumer, 
um, if you're an affiliate member for your buying club, you get a free copy as part of your membership. Um, so if you're not a member of Farm to Consumer, um, you can join if you have a buying club as an affiliate member and you'll get your copy for free. And you'll get also all the other benefits of membership in Farm to Consumer um, because for members, we'll help you with member agreements and other legal questions um, that might impinge in your particular state how you set up and administer mm -hmm. your buying club. Mm -hmm. um, if you want an e-copy, I have a website um, that has the ebook version. It's called foodclubsandcoops.com. Okay. I'm going to make a note of that. So I can include it in the show notes for everybody. It's foodclubsandcoops.com. Yep. Foodclubsandcoops.com. Okay. So everyone know your food podcast.com slash one That's where the show notes are. And I'll have links to farm to consumer as well as to the location for the, uh, the downloadable version. So John, let's talk about what's in the book now. So you said, um, people were coming to you with questions. It's an 80 page resource. Can I, obviously we can't get into all of it, but can you hit on maybe the top, um, two or three, four, whatever, whatever you think is appropriate, um, major questions that you answer for people and get a little bit into the answers. Well, the first major one is the legal setup. Okay. Um, so when about the time I was starting my buying club is about the time when Rossum, when Mana Storehouse and a number of other major local food type setups were being raided by the government. Okay. And so I wanted to find a setup that would little bit stronger legal footing so that when we had our inevitable fight with our state government, we would be more likely to walk away the winner. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so basically to really summarize, it, it sounds more complicated than it actually is. The reason Rossum and Mana Storehouse ended up losing is because they were truly selling food. And as soon as you are selling food, you fall under the state regulatory apparatus for selling food mm -hmm. and all the federal and state inspections and rules and regulations and handbooks and health departments, you're, you're there. So I needed to find a way to be able to help people access food without actually selling them food. All right. That's, this is making sense. Um, okay. And so what we basically did is we sundered the administrative side of people accessing food from the economic side. And, and we did that like the buying club is its own private association. Um, the members are who are buying things directly from the farmers and the sources we work with. But my LLC provides all of the billing and administrative services, all the money handling, all the record keeping that makes that happen. So it's sort of like the members are buying directly from, it's not sort of like it is, the members are buying directly from the farmers and the providers. Uh -huh. The members are also hiring Whole Life LLC to mm -hmm. handle the, 
their money transactions? Yeah, so I, I handle the website for members. I handle farm inspections and quality control. Um, I handle everybody's money, making sure the farmers are paid properly, making sure that the members are up to date with their payments. Um, yeah, you know, so like what I do for the buying club, all this billing and administrative services, I could do for Grandma's Bridge Club. I could do for a little league baseball team yeah, or whatever. You're not selling food. You're yeah, providing I'm not a selling service food. for whatever transaction. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I'm just I'm providing administrative services to the people involved in the transactions. And, um, and so this it, is one of the questions you answer in your book and share your experience and give people some guidance if they want to do it themselves. Is that correct? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. So, you know, the, the other big thing that matters, though, that that helps differentiate how I encourage people to set up their clubs is our members operate under strict prepayment. So all of our members in our club have floating accounts that they have 100 to $300 of money in so that when they place their orders, they're placing their orders with their own money. Hmm. And, and this legally, you know, legally, because Kroger, Sam's Club, any no way of accessing food for the most part other than like a CSA works this way. Yeah. But, but it's legally beautiful because I never own anything. Right. And I, it's just like a secret shopper money. service, you know, yeah. Justin Biber, all these famous people, they hand somebody else their money and they say, go shop for me. Mm-hmm. So, well, why can't average people do that? Mm-hmm. And, and so that has made, that has made actually a number of health departments more comfortable with this arrangement so how, cause this is huge. How did this come to you? Did you, were you just intuitive? I mean, you're very smart. I can tell. So did you just think I, I just got to do this so that there's n- no way anybody can shut us down or was it because of the whole Rossum thing that you then changed to doing it this way? I want to know how, how these measures came to your head to implement? Well, um, partly I didn't look good in prison stripes <laughs> and I have a wife and four kids I really like. So I, <laughs> if I was going to do this, I wanted to avoid as much as possible being drug into court, all of those kind of issues. So it was preventative measures. Um, you know, I, I did before we... As our club was growing, I spent a lot of time studying like why the co-ops of the 60s and 70s had basically all fallen apart. Um, You know, like what went wrong with that food distribution model that really handicapped them. Um, and And I did look at some of the other models that had came under legal scrutiny and pressure. Um, and I do have, I have a degree in business finance, economics, and mathematics. Okay. Um, so, and then I went on and then I also have a background in classics and ancient Near Eastern history. Um, so I've studied a lot of war over the years. (laughs) So so it was a combination of like my business background, um, and my historical knowledge coalescing into finding a crack in the regulatory pavement 
um, that I could fit my desire to help people access local food and support local farmers came together. Um, well, I think it's fabulous. Um, so there, there's one other small benefit of prepayment okay. that I cannot overemphasize. I've never met a person in a buying club who has not been stiffed by somebody monetarily. <laughs> because somebody will order something and then they disappear from the face of the earth. Um, and, and sometimes they actually have the item and they say to the person, oh, I'll be back. And then they're never back. Um, and, and since adopting this prepayment system, you eliminate that issue because people can't order things that they don't already have money in their accounts for. Mm-hmm. And so it protects, especially when you're small and eating a couple hundred dollars of a bum person's orders could be a real issue. Um, it, it really helps protect people um, from the bad eggs that can sometimes be in the bunch. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So what other kind of issues does your book cover? Um, we talk a lot about just basic logistics, choosing a location, um, not, you know, especially when you're small, not upsetting your neighbors, being real sensitive to those kind of issues. Um, cause a lot of people get in trouble by ear, you know, mm-hmm. if you're in a, if you're in a residential neighborhood and you're having 40 people come to your house every Friday for four hours of pickup and you're hogging up all the parking on the street one irritated neighbor is all it takes to get a phone call into zoning or the health department. And that's just never fun, even if you're legally in a good place. Um, you know, so we talk a lot about handling neighbors. I have a whole couple sections on handling members. Um, a lot of people start buying clubs cause they're real good hearted people and they get burned out very quickly. Um, cause They'll set hours and nobody listens to their hours and because they have a good heart. Now all of their family space and personal space is getting eaten up trying to do this. And they're also not getting compensated properly. So I talk about how to build compensation right into the system from the get-go so that you can retain good people who will make sure the club runs smoothly and effectively. Great. So... um I think the first time I learned about you is you left a comment at the Traditional Cooking School blog. Last fall, we had a a blog post go up um, from Lee about just basic guidance for people starting up a food co-op. And you left a comment that said you have concerns about club choices that don't rebuild the local farmer base. So I... The post I'm talking about for everybody who's listening, you can find it at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash club. And John, now that I have you here, (laughs) putting you a little bit on the spot, do you remember that? And can you explain it? (laughs) I'm going to the post right now. Okay, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash club. So part of my concern is that, um, oh, so, and like, Sometimes what I've seen with some clubs is because the price differential of getting food sometimes from hundreds and hundreds of miles away is cheaper than getting food locally. They are using um, primarily sources that 
that are not bioregionally oriented at all. They're actually undermining their local farmers by bringing in food from farmers that are 1,500 miles away. Um, and so like our club, we work with a mixture of local, regional, and national suppliers. And, and we're constantly balancing this, but we really focus on, we want to try and get as much food locally as possible because that's where you're going to get the greatest transparency and, and long term, um, there's just at some point people are going to have to relearn to pay the prices for food production that are driven by their own areas. Um, so th that's part of what has gotten us into the food system problems we have right now because it's cheaper to grow something in Chile than it is to grow it in Columbus, Ohio. So we'll just get it from Chile and all of the consequences and drawbacks to that we'll ignore because we're saving 35 cents, whatever. Um, and so whenever I train and teach people about buying clubs, um, I, I really want them to focus on helping rebuild their local food systems. Even if you have to start out bringing food in from farther away, our club has helped revitalize or start dozens of farms here in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we let our farther away suppliers know that we're very upfront, you know, like we want them to be supplying their local communities. And, and so we want to support them in their effort to reach and better serve their local communities. And we want to find farmers that want to serve our local communities. So I get it. And I'm completely behind you on it. Practically speaking, though, for the person who wants this quality of food and can't pay the additional 35 cents per pound, what do you do about that? Is, does your selection of sourcing some from far and as much as you can from local, does it kind of all wash out? Like some people splurge on this local and they get something else from far away. I'm just trying to get an idea of practically speaking how we can how we can, you know, I mean, it's a, sometimes it just comes down to a budget issue. Yeah. And, and this is where it's interesting because at least for me here in Kentucky, we have a low enough, low enough base cost of land, cost of production and related things that there, there's few things that can't be produced locally that wouldn't be cost competitive with some of the larger, um, real food producers out there who are covering nationally. Um, so I do understand, especially I guess for people in Oregon where the cost of living is so much higher in California, why that, why that becomes more of a challenge. Um, and so for us, thankfully we, as long as we can get it produced, our, our problem probably more than like where you all are is things meeting quality standards more than price standards okay. in our area. Mm -hmm. um, so for clubs that are on the coasts where real estate value has just gone through the roof um, and the population density is so much higher, it is going to be more of a challenge to balance your offerings to where you can for families who are 
in a lower socioeconomic status keep things affordable for them while at the same time um, not totally throwing your local producers under the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing we do for members in financial need is we have opportunities for them to volunteer at the club in exchange for food credit. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of, we also have a, a program at our club that has helped about, I'd say, almost a little over a half dozen families at this point. We call it our kitchen sink program. Um, so if we have a family who's having trouble financially affording real food for their family, um, we will encourage them to look at what are value-added products that members in the club want that they can safely and efficiently make in their own kitchens for other members. Hmm. Um, and to give you an example of one such product, um, take elderberry syrup. Elderberry syrup is incredibly expensive mm-hmm. if you buy it. I think it's going for around, it might be around $20 for eight ounces or 12 ounces or something. Um, so there's a family in our club, the husband had lost his job um, through no fault of his own, really great guy, really hardworking. He was actively pursuing finding a new job and the, the wife wanted to continue to feed their family well. And so she started making um, tooth powder and she started making elderberry syrup. And I think last year it generated – you know, something like three or four thousand dollars for their family. Hmm. Um, so, so, so that's another thing we do. Like, we try and find innovative solutions to some of these problems, um, because all this mom is doing is the items are owned by the members of the club. They're basically paying her for labor to do. You know, just like paying somebody to come into your kitchen and make you dinner. Right. Um, so we avoid, you know, it's another workaround for the regulatory governmental apparatus that would normally throw somebody into a 20 to $40 an hour certified kitchen that, and, you know, also takes them away from being home with their family. Well, now I need childcare. Now I need a certified kitchen. Now I need to travel, um, to, to do this. So, like, no, like we have a program in place. We do basic food safety training with them. We have basic standards of production we have items that you're allowed to do this under and you can do it right from home and you can bless other members of the club because now we're, we're cutting out the middleman, this items being made right here. Um, so the price is cheaper for members and this family's making good money doing it. So now they can afford better quality food and everybody walks away a winner. I love it. Uh, What you've done, John is just so commendable. Thank you for sharing with us. We are out of time now. So I want to wrap up with, again, a big thank you to John. And I know there's going to be lots of questions. So you guys visit the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 116. And if you have questions, you can leave them there. You can also um, follow the links to get John's book. It's the Food Club and Co-op Handbook and Um, I can already tell it's wonderful. So thank you so much, John. Well, thank you for what you do. Our family's been learning from your website 
for years and years and years. So it's wonderful to connect finally. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope to see you again soon. Let me tell you what you can do next. You can visit the show notes for this episode. Just go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash, and then without a space, just type the number of this episode. You'll get links and much more information about what we've been talking about. You can submit questions for future episodes. I love to answer your questions on the air. So go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash questions to submit them. You can stop by traditionalcookingschool.com to get five free traditional cooking videos from me. And finally, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, the podcast app, or Stitcher. If you're on a mobile device, just search for Know Your Food with Warty while you're in the app. If you're on a desktop, go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash iTunes right in your browser. While you're there, please do leave a rating or review. I love to get them, love to read your comments, and they're invaluable to help other people find this podcast. Thank you so much.